0: This podcast is produced in support of Lung Cancer Awareness Month. In the month of November, please help spread awareness of lung cancer. If you want to find out more, get involved or donate, please visit TOGA's website at www.thoraciconcology.org.au. That is www.thoraciconcology.org.au. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this TOGA podcast about lung cancer screening, how to move from funding announcement to implementation. I'm Emily Stone, and I'm a respiratory physician at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, and had the good luck to participate as a principal investigator into the International Lung Screen Trial. I'm joined in this discussion by Professor Gavin Wright, director of Surgical Oncology and a thoracic surgeon at St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne, Professor Nicole Rankin, an implementation scientist from the University of Melbourne with expertise in lung cancer, and Professor Annette Williams, a respiratory physician at. Fiona Stanley Hospital in Perth and Clinical Lead for the Thoracic Tumour Collaborative for Western Australia. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners uh, of all the lands uh, where we sit and live and work and their elders past and present, and we thank them for their custodianship of the land. So to open the conversation, I'd like to, to really reflect on the announcement that delighted us all in May, we discussed this a little earlier that the Australian government was going to fund a national lung cancer screening program. And today we want to talk about a lot of concepts around how that might look as it goes forward. So I might turn first to Gavin, and it's going to be first names, to ask him about what his thoughts are. Initially, let's say, uh, implications for surgeons, but from that point of view, how some of the practical considerations and other issues might look.
1: Thanks, Emily. Yes, look, I think the, the issues are going to be partly the logistics of federal state relationships over these things, because this is a federal program and public hospitals are run by each state. Therefore, each state is likely to go its own path with the intention of the same result. Or just from a purely surgical perspective, this will slowly increase the number of operations required, both to treat cancer but also extra diagnostic surgery and the number of surgeons required to divert their efforts to treating lung cancer is going to increase with time so depending on how well the uptake of the program it could be several years before we see a full effect of this but that's also means that we should be planning now for that increased workforce rather than waiting till the system is breaking. Even now, you know, we we do have pressures to treat our patients within state-designated time limits. And obviously, a screened lung cancer, luckily, we've got a little more time on our hands than, than someone who we find with a symptomatic or a large lung cancer that's found accidentally. So we can sort of juggle things, and I'm sure we will juggle things for quite some time, but that's going to be the ultimate reality is that jurisdictions will have to look ahead and people uh, and, and organisations like the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons are going to have to think about changing their workforce forecasts because this is a radical change that, that has not happened before.
0: I think you're right. It's quite a dramatic change, really exciting for us. And, and I do want us to spend some time talking about how the, the clinical craft groups might adapt. But first of all, I might go to you, Nicole, You know, we know that you've had experience visiting some of the major international screening programs, and we'd love to hear some of your insights to start with about what you drew from those visits that might inform how we go towards implementation here.
2: Thanks, Emily. I had the great fortune of being the recipient of a Churchill Fellowship, which enabled me over a six-week period to visit 18 different screening centres in the Netherlands, across the UK and in the US. And to talk to a really broad range of people, we have some great similarities with Ireland and Scotland in that we're getting ready to ramp up or roll out lung cancer screening programs, look at some of the UK experiences around how well their mobile screening services are working with targeting people in lower socioeconomic backgrounds and using mobile screening vans to go and take screening to the people, really, rather than waiting for people to come to hospital-based services. So they're having enormous success there, getting consent rates of sort of over 50% in a new pilot screening program that really hasn't got a lot of traction behind it in comparison, say, to breast or cervical cancer, where we've got over 20 years of experience of thinking about how those programs work well. And then in the US where their programs now have been implemented for about a decade and they're really struggling with the uptake and the national average is about 6%, so you've got a very large proportion of the population who's eligible for screening uh, missing out and not actually getting to screening centres and that's for a whole host of reasons, including going right back to the beginning and that need for promotion and awareness raising with communities. there's a lot of great examples that we can learn from and i think we'll cover some of those in the in the podcast today i guess if i was putting my money on any sort of intervention that's going to work well to unite the primary secondary and tertiary healthcare systems across a screening program it's the use of navigators in the system and canada in particular has a fantastic Example of using telephone-based navigators to help people get into screening programs, and I think we've certainly got a lot we can learn from
0: our Canadian colleagues. Thanks. We're still waiting for information. We're really, really very excited to see how this program rolls out in Australia, and there's, I think, we all have particular things we'd like to see done the way they've done it over there, for example, and and things we'd like to avoid. Certainly. Just from my experience, and, and some listeners maybe maybe haven't heard of the International Lung Street Screen Trial, but many have. But to recap, it's a, a lung cancer screening study run through multiple Australian centres and several overseas centres, comparing several sets of selection criteria and optimal ways to manage any nodules found. One of my particular interests working through that study was recruitment, which is a, a sort of a proxy for how you might as it were, do promotion and awareness and the centres did things differently. We're still publishing our data, but it has struck me and I'd be interested in both of your insights and Annette coming on board that there hasn't been a lot of science internationally. I think the UK has probably done this most rigorously in how to recruit people to lung cancer screening trials and thereby to programs and some of the different ways you can do it, we can talk about those details. But, you know, my own experience in my centre was through uh, mass media and community outreach, and it was very variable. Annette, as we move towards implementation, I'd love to know your thoughts on optimal ways to recruit into lung cancer screening, and particularly based on the WA experience and, and your work in Canada.
3: Oh, thank you very much. Good to be joining you all. We have a diverse community, and I think there's many different groups in our community, and our approach to them will be quite different, I think, and we've got to be very creative and, I think, look at all and multiple different ways to recruit people. Ways that we found very useful in WA, recruiting to the ILST study, was using GP practices, and that was a very positive outcome. But for our patients who don't have a GP or uh, live a long way from a GP, I think we need to be creative in recruiting them in other ways. I the mail-out method are less effective. So that's still a possibility, I think, in some groups, but it was less effective in WA for the International Lung Screen Trial. I think it has been useful that method, um, with that method in the Nelson study in Europe through kind of mail-out through the community. And I think it's hard. People don't seem to really engage with that method very well, so I don't know whether that would be top of my list to use as a recruitment method. But certainly I think GP practices, community health nurses, community organisations, I think is more effective.
0: And just taking that back to Nicole, and I think you mentioned earlier that engagement with a healthcare practitioner or the message coming from a healthcare practitioner really increased uptake. Do you have any insights into other data or information from settings in Australia or similar that might tell us a bit more about how much we should depend on healthcare workers for recruitment or otherwise. And I guess I'm a little anxious because we know how stretched our primary care workforce is already. Emily, it's really interesting
2: when you look at that UKLS trial, which Annette, I think was referring to some of the information coming out of the UK The letter works well because you've already got people registered with a GP practice. So I guess with some of the new practice-based initiatives that are coming through the Commonwealth Government for people to register with a GP practice, we might actually find that we get some improvements. It'll take a little while, I think, to wait and see, because we certainly know one of the challenges is that people's history of smoking and how well that's documented in the GP medical record is pretty sparse my team's just finished an audit in victoria to look at that topic and there's a lot of work to be done without saying too much because we're still in the process of analyzing the data some of the other methods though i think in canada and in british columbia that seem to be working well of course is social media and, and using facebook they've had great uptake through that strategy and i know emily you've reflected on the fact that in new south wales that didn't have a lot of impact but it really does go back to that point of bringing in innovation that Annette was mentioning. So one example that springs to mind from talking to people in one of the London-based pilot programs was that the NHS was using strategies for printing out resources in quite innovative ways. So the pharmacy bag that you collect your medicines in when you go to the pharmacy has a really great ad on it which just says... Are you aged 55 to 74 and smoke or used to smoke? If so, have a chat with your GP about our our free lung health checks. So, it's not a costly strategy, but it gets to people at that point where they're, you know, in their everyday setting. They're getting the messaging in a really simple, straightforward way, and the use of things like QR codes so people can click on the link and then get referred into a website and enrol for their Appointment to talk to somebody about having a screen are the sorts of things that we could be looking at. So
0: it's clear, uh, isn't it? I think that the really the research into to how to to make people aware of lung cancer screening and then how to get them from awareness to actually coming in and getting checked. There's a lot of work and it it'd be likely to vary a lot between different communities. And certainly my experience in running the trial is you could be as creative as you liked and there there were no no rules at the time. Does that echo uh, Annette with your experience as well?
3: Yes, I think it does. And I think there's the response can be quite variable, and some people will never come in and never, but they're too afraid, you know. I remember trying to, you know, talking to people one-on-one and they're just too scared to get screened and I don't know how to... Approach those people, how how to make them more reassured. So I think, you know, using everything. I think we also found going through the cancer council website with links to our colleagues in Queensland, exploring uptake through Quitline as a research. Uh, British Columbia also used general practice and we've also used multimedia in WA and in in my work in British Columbia, we also used regular presentations on radio and on TV to recruit people. Uh, So I think everything is required, but the hard to reach people, the people that are too afraid or too scared, they may know about it, but they don't want to come in. If you even look at breast and colorectal screening, we still don't have as high uptakes in those screening programs that we would like. So how to get those people who are a bit afraid. I think lung cancer screening is just a little bit more scary.
0: (laughs) Gavin, you've had some interesting thoughts on how to frame this upcoming lung cancer screening program. To give people the real message that this is a very hopeful program, what would you say to a group or a community or an individual who was shying away from participation? Well, I think
1: to date, no one's really seen positive role models of survivors of lung cancer. That's something that that is not existent in the media or in advertising. And I think that actually needs to be a very big focus of communications of this, that sure, you may be diagnosed with lung cancer, which nobody wants, but that's why you're in the screening program. But you're in the screening program because you want to be cured. And your opportunity to be cured is so much greater in the screening program than if we just let nature take its course. And I think that is such a, a strong message that needs to be get out right at the outset.
0: I think you're right, aren't you? And that's our clinical experience that I certainly have many moments where the biopsy confirms lung cancer. And of course, the my poor patient is in shock and it's it's a horrifying diagnosis. But on my side of the table, I'm... not happy, but I'm really thrilled it's early stage because I know I can send them to you for a cure. And that's not really, that kind of understanding of lung cancer is a completely curable disease. That's not really a common view. Is that your experience and how you would approach that?
1: Absolutely. When I see patients who have a small, luckily, you know, for some other reason, they were found a very small curable cancer that's asymptomatic, you know, they're not Suffering from that at all, easily removed. They are totally surprised when explained that we've got actually a very good chance of curing this. It's like it's, a, it's the first time they've ever heard that. All they've heard about lung cancer is that that's the worst cancer you can have, you know, and you're gonna die.
0: So we want people to know that lung cancer screening has the potential to completely change experience of getting this disease of what happens later, of survival and people will be there for their families and their loved ones. I will move us a little bit along the sort of screening journey in a second, just that fear and possibly the stigma. Nicole, can you give us any insights into the Lung Health Check approach that's used in the UK that might address some of those issues?
2: I think the Lung Health Check is really that focus on trying to normalise the screening experience, so reassuring people around their fears showing videos, patient testimonials, where people who've been through the screening program talk about how simple and straightforward it is. You lie down and you're in the scanner. It's not like an MRI where you you know, have the claustrophobia, but you don't have to get changed into a hospital gown and there's no injection. There's, it's a simple, straightforward procedure. Those sorts of messages to reassure people who are feeling fearful or scared about what the experience might involve is really reassuring and I think the other really nice messaging too is that when people are going into a a mobile or a fixed screening unit that welcoming environment from the nurses and the radiographers who are there to to make it a very comfortable environment uh, they do get a lot of hands-on training about reassurance and working with people all of those things will make a difference to help people overcome their fears about what might lie ahead with having the scan
0: so clearly we could talk for another hour just on how to recruit people i do feel like we should move along and the next step in my mind is sort of the communications back to general practitioners of the results how to manage that perhaps some discussion of the navigator role we heard about in canada and and how that m- might look as uh, translated into the australian setting gavin do you have any thoughts on navigation options for an Australian screening program? Well, I think one thing that was
1: brought up just briefly before was that GPs have got an incredibly difficult job and most of them are very overloaded. And I think the GPs need to be informed. They need to know what's happening with their patients. But my feeling from talking to the GPs in the consultation process is they want to know that once they've got their patient onto a screening program that the patient will kind of be looked after and they'll get fed back where they are with you know what's the diagnosis etc and then be returned to the gp for ongoing scanning you know for continuation of their program and you have to remember it's not getting them in the door the first time is is what the screening is it's actually keeping them coming back so i think gps also need to be part of that. You know, this is not a one-off intervention. The intervention actually is the can you know the continued treatment. And and things like mail-outs that they, they didn't really work in the Melbourne part of the international lung cancer screening trial. They're very disappointing. I uh, so I think GPs are where you know the, the, the money is myself. It's like the 80 20 rule. You're going to get with that amount of effort, you're going to get 80% of your patients and then you've got to work on novel ideas for your 20%. You know?
0: And Annette and then Nicole, any thoughts from you on roles of navigators, will we get navigators, how would we fill that need and then, you know, any sort of other insights in how we engage the primary care practitioners and and make sure they're they're such a pivotal part, how will we make that work well? So maybe Annette and then Nicole.
3: I think that, well, there's two different questions there. I think one is the role of navigators and the one is how do we really engage with our general practitioners. So perhaps I'll, I'll focus on the navigator first. I think they have a real role. They've been very successful in Ontario and uh, with more centralised programs than, say, in the, in the US and in Canada, particularly for people who are not so health literate. So I think for our patients, particularly if they're remote or regional patients, I think this is really important for Western Australia or for or regional communities where they need help coordinating getting into a centre, they may have mental health issues, unemployed, they have, have poor literacy. I think a navigator can be really engaging, and in, a, in, in the Ontario they found this, particularly they went for very high-risk groups who are vulnerable populations, First Nations, and the role of the navigator was crucial. So may not, maybe not everyone needs to get a navigator. Maybe people that have a good relationship with their GP, their health literate, they, they don't, but certain members of our communities will need a navigator. The second other question was how to engage our GPs and that's just talking to them. I mean, I spend a lot of time on the phone to GPs. And, the, and, and when we enroll people, uh, our, our fellow went out to general practices and explained the study, helped coordinate things. I spent a lot of time on the phone. I still spend a lot of time on the phone talking to general practitioners when they refer a patient with a clinical nodule. So, building those relations and keeping it, as Gavin said, keeping it really simple and straightforward, making it very easy for our general practitioner colleagues to know where to refer and when to refer, when they get a result, and making it very straightforward. Confusion and miscommunication is not what we want in a screening program and they can cause a lot of downstream problems.
0: And Nicole, your group's done some work on optimal ways to convey results to general practitioners moving forward to implementation. Where do you see that going? Emily, some of that work's
2: been around early detection of lung cancer and using a standardised template that goes back and forth essentially from the MDT when the patient's had a diagnosis, helping the GP to get that timely information in two days of when the patients had a review. So if we could adapt some of those strategies that have worked well in a different context to the screening setting, I think there are great opportunities there, as well as some of the things, the innovations that we see where GPs also have access to referring patients into services that will help patients to make that decision about you know when is the right time for them to screen and are they eligible. So that's, of course, in the primary care setting, some of the, the roles and responsibilities of practice nurses changing and helping with that informed decision-making process, uh, really important. And also then the links with community health workers. So obviously for our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community members, we need to be thinking about, Having those strategies in place where the Aboriginal health workforce are upskilled to have those conversations, you know, the importance of yarning and and talking with community and making sure that the, the training for our primary care workforce is not just GP focused, but going out to a whole range of professionals in that primary care setting.
0: This makes me think of the different ways that those strategies could be implemented in different localities. Gavin, over to you. Just You've got a lovely way of looking at the different involvement of federal and state jurisdictions in the screening program because for people who haven't been embedded in the trials and working in this area, it might not be obvious exactly how that's going to map out and what implications that might have for rollout. What are your thoughts? The roles of the
1: federal, obviously, this is going to be in a special unit in Cancer Australia, which runs all the screening trials. So it will be added to cervical, colorectal, breast, etc. And I think there'll be quite specific roles that are clearly best done centrally and federally, such as maintaining the register, who's on the scheme, who needs to be called back on the scheme, and reporting and also looking at how effective the scheme is. We need to know what is the percentage of target population that's being screened, et cetera. And we want to know that eventually that we're impacting on results. So that's very much a a federal thing. So I call it the spine of the program is really going to have to be federal. But other than some private patients that will remain in the private system, it's not going to be a federal system on the ground. It's going to be a state system because that's how we treat the majority of people in the country and in this population even more so because the social facts of, of where lung cancer happens is that it's going to be skewed heavily to being treated in the public system. So it's really clinical on the ground done by states but management and oversight and decision making of the direction of program that that is really a federal uh, Cancer Australia job.
0: Thank you. That consideration of clinical management on the ground brings me to where I want to go next, which is to how we're going to manage what we see as perhaps an increase in in our workforce. So we've recruited, we've screened, we've got them into the program, we're communicating with the GP, the results are back at the GP, and now we have to manage the findings. So we've got various jurisdictions represented. Annette, maybe to start with, What's going to happen? What's going to happen to our clinical services once we have a screening program? Hopefully, we'll be getting very busy
2: <laughs> because that means we have
3: good recruitment and uptake of the program. You know, the world has moved on in the last twenty years. We we know how to manage nodules and findings better now than we did twenty years ago when we first started thinking about screening. So it's much more streamlined. There's a lot more evidence to assist us as clinicians. How busy will we get? We'll literally depend on recruitment and uptake. If we're successful, we should double our current workload in most tertiary cancer centres that are seeing people with a suspected lung cancer or a nodule that requires investigation or consideration of investigation. And that may be over the first couple of years of implementation, but no one's really done this well. There is some modelling work of workforce impact in the US, but the US has had very low uptake in their screening, so they haven't seen this massive surge in workload because it's recruitment in the US has been very slow and very poor by the community so as I said it all depends on our success and recruitment and uptake by the community if they like the program if they want to be involved they will get busy very quickly as they are in British Columbia and you can estimate if you have the numbers of how many portion of the population is is going to be eligible. And I think Australia is going to be using MSAC criteria. If you kind of understand what that number is and where they live, you can easily work out the numbers that will flow to the centres that need to do the investigation. I think the good thing in Australia is that many centres already have clear pathways for patients that require investigation for lung cancer. That's been quite well established in, in Australia uh, with multidisciplinary meetings attached to those centres. So I think that's an advantage.
0: And do you want to just, for the audience, just briefly give the MSAT criteria in case people aren't aware? Well, the MSAT criteria
3: is the age of people 50 to 70 years of age, so quite a young group, who are current smokers or former smokers who've quit less than 10 years ago, so they quit within 10 years, and they have to have a 30-pack year smoking history. So it's quite a tight cohort. They're only using demographic variables to enrol people or categorical criteria, call them.
0: So uh, we do not have clear numbers of what proportion of our population that is. Gavin, moving up towards, you know, we find a nodule and it needs your care. What are your thoughts and projections on the the impact and and how we're going to manage all of this?
1: Yeah, my thinking is very similar to Annette's obviously there's a roll in phase, so you obviously don't scan everyone on day one. you'll over a couple of years you'll start getting up to your optimal rate, whatever that is. we know that colon is like thirty nine percent, probably a bit higher in breast. Assuming we target you know say hopefully forty percent, but we really want well over fifty, then, that will generate a lot of suspicious nodules and then of those maybe 10% of those may end up being confirmed as cancer and have to have lobectomies or resections of some sort that will definitely I mean we'll be happy initially because we like we like working we like uh, helping people but obviously over time though that will become particularly burdensome for if we just keep the same workforce so we do need to think pretty early what's going to happen in several years because it takes six years to create a new surgeon so it's no good waiting until we overload overloaded and then waiting another six years.
0: I think those kind of numbers are really helpful that we can't just turn the tap on and expect Dr Gavin Wright to triple his workload it's just not going to happen that way is it so I think these kind of conversations really help us One thing we haven't had a lot of time to talk about tonight is the really critical role of smoking cessation and how that's going to be integrated into this. Nicole, I think this is your talking point to start with.
2: Emily, our team's just recently held a national consensus workshop to set priorities with community and key groups, including the Commonwealth and Cancer Australia, and Some really clear priorities came out of that workshop. And one is just that to have the smoking cessation intervention and opportunity for discussion has to be across the entire pathway. And having a training program that is upskilling health professionals in how to have those conversations around cessation is so vital. We need to look really carefully at how things like nicotine replacement therapies are reimbursed under the MBS, making sure that if people are being referred to best evidence around what will help them to quit smoking that we can actually then provide those resources to people in in a very equitable way. Lots of opportunities there for us to bring smoking cessation in and one of the groups that we know we can't forget about is that is a, a, a teachable moment too for people who might speak to their GP or to somebody in the program about wanting to screen, finding that, that in fact they're not eligible because they're outside of the criteria that Annette talked about. We can still, if people are currently smoking in that group, offer them that opportunity to think about quitting and how we can make sure that we don't miss that opportunity. It's such an important opportunity, of course for us to get this information built into the screening program right from the beginning, because we know from data coming from other countries that it's one of the things that makes the program more cost effective. So you maximize your screening program if you engage people in cessation and those health benefits roll on for people, not only in preventing obviously lung cancer, but cardiovascular disease, diabetes, a whole range of
0: other chronic conditions.
2: So the, the work is there for us to do.
0: Thank you. That's so, so critical. There is so much to talk about. And I, I do want to acknowledge that we're all aware that there is a sizable minority of people who uh, unfortunately get lung cancer who have never smoked. And we know that there's emerging research in Australia, but that's outside the scope of this particular discussion. We have to wrap up. But I think there's a really important concept in implementing lung cancer screening, which is access and equity and making sure that people who need it get it. And I'd love to call for a comment from each of the panellists on that, maybe starting with Gavin.
1: Yeah, I think um, obviously the the most work needs to be done with the people hardest to get onto the program because they actually have the highest, they also have the highest, potentially the highest rate of lung cancer. So, and that's been shown in other screens. So I think... Energy spent there is well spent, even though it is, you know, on the 80-20 rule, it's the hard part of the uh, equation, but it actually has the most dividends. So I think equity in this instance equals success.
0: That's a great way of looking at it. Annette, your thoughts?
3: I would completely concur with uh, Gavin. I think the other thing that's important to discuss is gender equity. Uh, Lung cancer screening has an even greater impact on mortality for women and greater success for women. I'm concerned that the current MSAC recommendations will favor men who are heavy current smokers and it's gonna disfavor women and longer term former smokers who we know are still at risk of lung cancer because about 60% of lung cancers in Australia now occur in people who have quit smoking. So my concern with the current criteria for screening is that we won't have equity and access for both our former smokers at risk and for women, as well as the other groups in society that we need to focus on, our high-risk groups. So I think we're going to need to watch that very carefully.
0: And our Indigenous communities as well. So, so crucial. Yes, of course. I mean, yes. I know we have to wrap up, but maybe, Nicole, your thoughts on equity and access just before we finish?
2: Uh, Sure. Look, I think, Emily, the Commonwealth has already thinking very carefully and working very closely with First Nations people. They're thinking about equity in terms of access for remote and rural communities through mobile screening. The other group that really needs a lot of attention is thinking about our culturally and linguistically diverse members of the community. 30% of Australians have one or both parents born overseas smoking rates are higher in some groups and we've got great examples of how we can do community outreach looking at some of the programs in the UK the Leeds lung health check program have all of their materials translated into 17 community languages they already have translators ready and available on the phone to take people through that initial conversation about deciding whether to screen so we can pick up on some of those international best practice examples And think about how we do that translation into community languages and engaging with community leaders to encourage people to consider screening.
0: So it sounds like we're actually well positioned to really benefit from the experiences of some of the programs and pilots that have started overseas. I wish we could keep talking. This has been such an insightful conversation and I think we're really, really looking forward to seeing how this progresses in Australia. And what we really want to do is help the patients and help the people who come to see us and help the people who don't come to see us who we have to reach out and bring into the program uh, very much. So thank you very, very much to the panel and to our sponsors and to TOGA for the support for this podcast.